recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada, a Get a Grip management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Financially supported by the good folks at the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, this is Restoring Darkness podcast. This episode of Restoring Darkness is brought to you by Evluma. If you're serious about contributing to the reduction of light pollution, go to evluma.com, hover over products, and click on Dark Sky Friendly Lighting. Both the Omnimax and Ariamax lights are International Dark Sky Association certified. The warmer color temperatures of the Omnimax reduce the more easily scattered blue wavelengths, which contribute to glare and sky glow. With Ariamax lights, you get full cutoff, which also means no uplight and a significantly reduced contribution to sky glow. And all of Avluma's outdoor lighting product lines come with dimmable drivers for even more control. If your customer is looking for dark sky friendly fixtures with energy savings while still meeting the demands of decorative lighting, look no further than Evluma. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of dark skies. Welcome back, folks, to the Restoring Darkness podcast. On today's show, I'm honored to be joined by Don Brown. A recognized industry leader in, in circadian lighting design, Don is driven by a passion for designing lighting solutions that promote human health and wellness. Don's 20-year career is defined by her dedication to continuous improvement and willingness to challenge the status quo. She was one of the first lighting designers in Canada to achieve the Certified Lighting Designer Credential, CLD, adding her name to the CLD database among some of the world's most prestigious and accomplished designers. Her extensive experience spans multiple sectors and a wide array of buildings, including healthcare and long-term care facilities. Corporate offices, libraries, post-secondary educational facilities, entertainment and sports complexes. Known for her commitment to environmental stewardship, Dawn develops sustainable lighting solutions that respect the natural environment having contributed to contemporary and inventive lighting designs for multiple well and lead certified buildings. Welcome to the Restoring Darkness podcast, Don. Thank you for having me. So before we start, um, you know, sustainable in the lighting industry and in the, in the darkness restoration space and all that, what does sustainability mean to you? Um, longevity. Um... <laughs> I guess keeping things out of landfills, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Not negatively impacting um, our environment or mm -hmm. causing disruption. Um, and something that we can keep doing long-term without having like a huge negative impact on, on anything. Yeah, you know, it's one of those terms that kind of evolves um, I've been in the lighting industry for over 20 years and I, I can remember a time when the CFL was a symbol of sustainability in the lighting industry. And now it's gone from, you know, that to the, you know, one of the most thing, the things we want to most get rid of, which is mercury in, in lighting. And so the, 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 the term is an evolving term. I think it's one of those things that we, that we, um, that will always be in front of us. And you mentioned continuous improvement in in your profile, and I think it's something that we're we're going to be chasing forever. <laughs> yeah, I think that 
as an industry or maybe as a society, we confuse the term or use interchangeably the term or sustainability with energy efficiency. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people think that if something is energy efficient, um, that it is sustainable, mm -hmm. but sustainability goes way beyond that to um, how easily the product can be broken down and um, reused um, and what is the impact of um, tossing that product at the end of useful life. Um, so what are the toxic chemicals that are contained? And we know mm -hmm. that with fluorescent, there's mercury, mm -hmm. but I don't see too many people talking about the fact that we're using gallium in mm -hmm. LED and sure. what's going to happen to all of these LED fixtures that reach end of life. I think if we are really talking sustainability, we're not just focused on energy efficiency. We are thinking about how are we responsibly taking back these products that we're putting out there and reusing them and um, managing all of the components that went into building it in the first place. So I'll tell you what happens to LED fixtures that burn out right now. Um, I know what happens to them. I, I, I'm in Toronto. I run a company called Waste Diversion. And mm -hmm. uh, traditionally, that was a fluorescent and HID lamp recycling uh, broker. And so we've recycled millions, and we have end destinations for mercury-containing lamps. We know where they go. We know how much mercury is recovered, what happens to the glass, the phosphor, all these kinds of things. Um, nobody knows what happens to LED light fixtures at the end of life, except for very few people like me. And they're, they're thrown into boxes with computers and other electronics. It's basically e-waste. So that gets shredded up and a large portion of it goes to landfill. Um, probably most of it, cause a lot of it is plastic and unreusable metals. And so, you know, the, the lighting industry, um, was operating on an, on an assumption that LEDs are going to last a really long time. And while we have increased the life of the light source, Don, uh, we've decre massively decreased the life cycle of the fixture. And so, um, you know, there's a coming wave of uh, LEDs of all, whether they're premium, they were bought as premium in 2017 or economy grade in homes or whatever. There's a wave of this stuff coming and, and we have no solution for it. Um, the other angle, and I'm going to turn it towards why people listen to this, this show, which is to talk about darkness restoration and night preservation. The other issue is you mentioned the lumens per watt or the energy efficiency being, you know, the, you know, Hey, it's energy efficient. It must be good. Um, we've created a lot of light pollution with that attitude and with that priority. And, um, Ruskin Hartley was recently, um, He's the executive director of uh, Dark Skies International. And he's quoted as saying that, uh, pollution, light pollution is increasing at a rate of 10% a year. This is not sustainable. Okay. Um, that rate of light pollution, how can we design or how can we convince clients to design for darkness rather than light? Um, well, first of all, we need to stop focusing on lumens per watt. Second of all, I think that we need to shift the focus from an optic point of view to light quality point of view. I think mm. um, we need to look at spectral power distribution mm -hmm. of our light sources and recognize the fact that we see better 
under natural light, basically. Mm. And light sources that are being manufactured based on uh, lumen efficacy or lumens per watt are missing big, huge portions of the spectrum, the color mm. spectrum. And um, so what is typically happening is a manufacturer will produce or make an LED for uh, 2,700K. Mm -hmm. And then in order to achieve 3,000K, they're spiking the blue content. Mm -hmm. And when we alight or apply that light, in a darker environment, um, that blue spike is causing us to react um, mm. in a certain way. It's it's overstimulating our short wavelength cones and understimulating our the rest of our cones that we're collectively using to see. Mm -hmm. And so we know that under different lighting conditions, we adapt. So in the when we're exposed to bright light, we're adapted to like photopic vision. And we mm -hmm. know that as we adapt to um, darker environments, our visual acuity or that spectrum of light that activates our rods and cones mm -hmm. shifts from daytime being like in the green portion of the spectrum toward the blue cyan portion of the spectrum. And so to me, I think that we need to regulate how LEDs are made and we need to set our uh, illuminance targets based on our state of adaptation. So if we are designing for a daytime environment, we call for photopic lumens. If we're designing for a nighttime environment, we call for either mesopic or scotopic lumens. Um, I feel like there's a lot of focus on optical control and reducing light trespass and reducing the amount of lumens that go here, there, or wherever. But really, we need to focus on what is a lumen and mm. really lumens in the traditional sense and what we look up in the IES handbook when we're designing are lumens based on our daytime adapted mm -hmm. visual state. So I feel like <laughs> we can design lighting that is 3000 K for nighttime environments. But if that 3000 K led is a 70 CRI giving really horrible quality of light, we're going to need more of that in order mm. to see better. If we can have light sources that are more closely matching natural light, like twilight, then we will need less intensity in order to see well. So I think that's where we need to go. The um, And I want to just, for those listening, a lot of people that listen to the show are not lighting people. Um, so they're okay. more on the environmental side. And so I just want to, I just want to clarify, cause I'm not a hundred percent sure of this either. When you talk about 2,700 Kelvin, okay. And you're shielding, you're doing something to the blue light to create it. The blue light is still there. That's correct. Right. When I say that, like, even though it yep. appears to be a warm source, 
you're still mm-hmm. delivering the same stimulus as if it if it appeared to be a different color. So when, when we're talking about um, you know Kelvin temperature, it doesn't necessarily address the problem. Is that correct, Don? Uh, yeah. So Kelvin temperature. If you've ever designed, I'm speaking in terms of a designer, but That's okay. um, if you've ever designed lighting, uh, if you've ever tried to light a completely white surface and um, you had to use multiple light sources because it was just a massive wall or a massive ceiling or something, mm-hmm. um, there's something that we recognize in the industry is called color shift. And um, so what will happen is one portion of say it's a cove one portion of the cove will be producing like a a pinkish sort of tinge to the light um whereas a few feet down the line or a few inches down the line maybe you might get a little bit off tone um and you don't really notice that until you're applying the light to like a completely white surface Mm -hmm. and so my point is is that Color temperature is not a very accurate um, metric to use in order to assess the quality of the light, um, even the color spectrum of the light, because a light source that is supposed to be 2700 or 3000 or whatever can vary dramatically in terms of the color of light that's actually being put out and therefore reflected back to our eye. So we need to be more precise. <laughs> mm-hmm. So what, when something, it, just because something appears to be a warmer color doesn't necessarily mean that the blue light is not on board with that. It's been filtered Correct. or in some other way, yeah. The, um, so generally speaking, yes, that's true. That if you're in the warmer end of the spectrum, you're going to have less blue content. But, and then if you're in the higher end of the spectrum, you're going to have more blue content. It's when you get into that middle range of like 3,500, 3,000, 4,100, which are the common light sources that we use um, architecturally, um, that your color content can be um, shift, shifted quite a bit. So we, I have a board of directors. And we've come up mm-hmm. with various terms, like one of the in discussions we talk about darkness restoration and night preservation as, as a way to call to action for frontline lighting practitioners, right? So when you say, when you say the word dark sky, whether it's a dark sky preserve or there's this, but we, we think that there is incremental ways that we can restore darkness in our, in our nighttime and our environments, which are light polluted. We think that there are incremental ways we can preserve night where it exists. And one of the things that, that I find very difficult as a lighting distributor is having these kinds of conversations with contractors or commercial property owners or industrial um, factories where they, they, there's, it's very difficult from my perspective to say to a client, hey, uh, why don't we consider less light? <laughs> like right. the, the only purpose to change the lights is to have more light projected further. Like basically, I want I want to call up uh, Michael and I want you to come here and I want you to create way more light pollution, glare and trespass for me in my parking lot. Like I could, they could, they don't say that, but that's what they're asking for. 
And I find that, you know, they don't, the lighting distributor doesn't have the same authority as a designer in the process of, of, of laying out a lighting system. Do you ever have trouble with your, with your clients when you, when you speak about um, darkness restoration or, or limiting the, the light trespass or, or re removing glare or these other, like, do they just want as much light as possible? And how do you have those conversations? So most of our clients are mostly concerned with not being sued. So they want to make sure that there's enough light to satisfy IES recommendations sure. because that's typically what is brought up um, if there's ever a, an accident. And, sure. um, and whether or not it's a recommendation or a standard, it in court holds counts, up as basically sure. a standard. So, and then the, the other thing that they're concerned with is how much is it going to cost me? Because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, that everybody wants to profit. That's why we're all in business. And so they need a metric to use in order to um, say, in order to achieve this, I need to spend this. So right now in our industry there is a lot of product that is being manufactured very very inexpensively um but it's not necessarily good quality uh it might and mostly it's the glare it's the the visual impact from the fixtures mm -hmm. and in order to manage glare i think a lot of us know that you need less bright fixtures and more of them However, if there is no regulation that says you need to have um, a certain, or you can't exceed a certain metric in terms of glare, then nobody is gonna pay attention to that. And so we need municipalities and authority figures to become more educated in terms of quality lighting and what it takes in order to create quality lighting in order to say, we need you to not have a glare rating above three or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, and so, yeah, I think that there's, uh, you have the same problem I have. Yeah. I have the same problem. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. it's it's capitalism <laughs> but like, capitalism what are we gonna do like we just i don't think it's i don't i don't think it has money i, I right? actually i'm gonna I, I'll, I'll i'll challenge you on the capitalism piece but we okay. sometimes we have to define it because um yeah. i don't like when people say socialism and capitalism i i see those two things as inseparable from one another so if somebody says to me i'm a capitalist or i'm a socialist it doesn't make any sense to me because um, and I'm just going to say, so when I'm talking about it, I mean, all of us are socio-capitalists. I don't know anybody that sure. doesn't believe in zero taxation. I don't believe in anybody that thinks they should build the road outside their business. So, so capitalism is the, is the way in which we produce wealth and socialism is how we redivide it. And what we're arguing about is where the bar goes. So this idea that someone's a socialist or a capitalist is silly in my opinion, because yeah. we're all kind of socio-capitalists. And so when, so to say that, it, I think the problem is the legal precedence. And if I've had the unfortunate um, 
uh, opportunity, the unfortunate opportunity to be involved in, in some legal cases that involved uh, car accidents and, and um, uh, someone dying. And I was, I wasn't, I wasn't involved, but I, I was there as a support person and, and was very curious about the process. And what happens is the lawyers start pulling out all these codes. Okay. And they pull out the highway traffic act in Ontario and they pull out the, the, how do you build an on-ramp to a highway code? And then they look mm -hmm. at the signage codes and then they look at the lighting codes and they're just looking for areas of inadequacy or less than they send out all manner of experts to measure light levels and to measure the distance between the, the sidewalk crossing and how the thing was signed and all this sort of stuff. If the number one barrier to um, darkness restoration and night preservation is the legal system, it is the regulations because you're right. Every, but the number one priority is making sure there's ample light in order that you have met the standard. And if someone, if something happens and somebody dies or something serious happens, immediately the lawyers are going to be checking the light levels at nighttime and mo and almost always they will find inadequacies. And the answer, right. unfortunately, from insurance companies, the legal, the insurance companies are another barrier to this, by the way. Um, the answer is invariably more light, more light pollution actually is the answer. More, more um, sky glow is the answer. And that's a really big trap for this movement. And I, I really, Don, I don't know how we get out of that one. That's a tough one. To, to kind well, of I think that we need to, we need to, goes back to what I was saying before, we need to define what the lumen is and what our regulations are actually based on. We need to think about what we need in order to see. Mm -hmm. And so if there is a, a government agency that is saying we need to satisfy IES light level recommendations, um, is that light level recommendation um, for a daytime adapted eye or is it for a nighttime adapted eye? Because right now everything is, the lumen is based on daytime adaptation. And so we are using much more light, I feel like, than what we would actually need to use. And um, so if we want to, save the night skies and create, you know, help promote darkness, um, then we need to look at reducing our intensities because mm -hmm. just creating like full cutoff fixtures and full cutoff roadway fixtures, I don't think that's a hundred percent the solution because there's reflected light. And I recently attended light fair in New York city and the keynote speaker was uh, lady Karen Trevino from US national parks. And mm -hmm. she had mentioned that they um, followed this uh, municipality that changed out all of their um, street and roadway lighting uh, to from like a HID source over to 3000 K LED. Mm -hmm. And they were very surprised to find that the sky glow condition actually got worse. And so I feel like what we're doing is we are pushing all of the light onto 
the horizontal plane onto the ground and mm -hmm. it's just reflecting up because we're only focusing on how much direct light is being deliberately cast above 90 degrees. So we need to somehow change that focus to capture how much reflected light also is being um, uh, traveling up into the night sky, let's say. It's it, it's a it, you're you're definitely correct that light is reflected even off asphalt surfaces. They can measure it, okay. And so when you're seeing, you know, the picture, the famous picture of North and South Korea, with South Korea being super bright because of capitalism, and North Korea being <laughs> super dark because well, there is a difference between communism and capitalism, but we're not going to have that conversation. Those are di yeah, yeah. socialism and communism are different things. <laughs> so, um, but I mean the, you know, this, the famous picture, right. And that's light. Most of that light that you're seeing from space is re-reflected. It's not, it's not like the lights are all pointed up at the, at, at the night sky, right. Most of them are pointed <laughs> down. Some of them are vertical advertising. Some of them are wall packs and these different kinds of fixtures that do create sky glow. But what you're largely seeing is the is the light coming off the roadway surface at night and that's what that's what's being reflected um but you know we also have to make incremental progress and we have to try new things but i would say that you're talking about ies i think the illuminating engineering society needs to become the like the lighting and darkness society it needs to it needs to consider both sides and like if you look at and i don't know if they've changed it recently but there's no maximum light levels is everything's a minimum, right? Yeah, they, no. <laughs> so they did actually come out with a new, um, or they revamped their uh, recommended practice for uh, lighting exterior environments. Mm. And I'm, they, they do, I'm not a hundred percent familiar with it, but mm. I, I'm pretty sure that there are ranges now. It's not. So it's recent, recent developments. Level. Right. And yeah. and that's great. And and uh, but I, I I really believe and this is um uh a personal opinion. It doesn't reflect the, the board of directors or anything like that. When you yeah. you mentioned earlier when you were talking that well you need more light fixtures if you're going to, you know, reduce the amount of light and shield it and do these other things. I think this this um movement um is represents the single greatest opportunity for our industry. And I also see it as a moral responsibility to tackle. And that means to, to, to lead. The, I believe the IES should lead this, not see it as an afterthought, not think it as secondary, but make, in terms of exterior lighting, the number one priority should be darkness restoration and night preservation to the expense of all other things. And I know I, it sounds like a, it's an opinion. That's my opinion. And yeah, yeah. I think... I think all us capitalists are going to get rich, Don, um, if, if we are able to accomplish that. Because that means almost every outdoor lighting fixture in North America and probably the world is in play for us to now change. Right. So, so the IES has a lot of different issues that they tried to help address. Um, and they are always and they have always um, said that their recommendations are recommendations. The thing that I think is holding us up from progress is the fact that people 
are just going into the recommended practices and looking for a value and then coming out and going designing based on just that value. And but meanwhile, there's all this narrative that the IAS provides um, talking about how to manage glare, how to protect night skies, um, things that you should consider. And if we, a lot of people just look at how much more is that going to cost me? How much more engineering work is going to have to go into doing a design that is applies like that? And so they're looking for, is there some sort of benefit for me now? Um, is there, is the project lead or is, you know, if it's not lead and if there's no reason to, to dive that deep into it, then we need to get in and get out and get onto the next job. And unfortunately, I don't think that anything that the IES could do can change that mentality. I think we, um, are on the right track with providing incentives. I really like the, like everything that I've seen that. Um, incentivizes uh, things like well and lead um, and even to a certain extent dark sky because they kind of are giving dark sky certification for manufacturers who make like full cutoff fixtures. Mm. Um, I, th I think that people want to do good. And so if we can help them um, use this good um, in a way that supports their business and increases their profit marketability, profitability, um, like they have done with well and lead and, um, with the, the little certification and the plaque that you can put onto the building. I think that's kind of going to draw more change than having a, some authority figure say, you must do this. Right. So, um, yeah, I think that. It's too, like, we have to kind of find a balance between this is the absolutely, you know, minimum light level that you need for the state of adaptation. And then we're going to reward you for doing this, or this is the positive thing that you're going to get out of, of, out of going that extra mile, I guess. Yeah, the Gucci then, suit play, like you put on a Gucci suit. That's what the well certification is and the leads. I, I don't mean to denigrate it. Don't get that. That's not what I'm trying to do. But I mean, it's like mm -hmm. you get you get to, you know, put the plaque on your building and, you know, people walk in. Ooh, well, certified, wow. Right. That's what that's what that business is. Right. It's a Gucci mm -hmm. suit. And that's great. Um, but let me ask you something. Do you believe that light pollution is pollution? Um, yeah, yeah, I do. Um, because it's having an impact on all types of ecosystems, um, animals and, you know, humans are part of nature as well. And so mm -hmm. if we are not preserving all of those other systems, then we're ultimately, you know, causing a detriment to ourselves. And so every wasted lumen that we put into the night sky, um, and you know, sorry, let me back. Like I just sure. had a thought here. I want to interject with of course. is that different species respond to different, um, wavelengths of light energy differently. So for example, turtles 
are um, turtles do better under you know the amber light. Uh, they're less impacted by the am that amber spectrum, and but at the same time, bird migration, birds are attracted to red light, and so having a lot of red light cast into the sky could impact a different species of animals. And so we need to, and I'll keep going back to this, create light sources that mimic natural light. So right now I feel like, or actually, yeah, every wasted light, every wasted lumen or photon, probably be a better way to describe it than light, um, is pollution. It is pollution. We need to have a good understanding of what it is that we're putting out into the environment. And are we overstressing something? Like if we're putting out tons and tons of blue energy and it is, you know, this, I always think of light in terms of like sound. So if the two are very similar, blue, it would, yeah, if you could hear blue, it would have a really high pitched sound. If you could yep. hear red, it would have a like more of a, uh, a low pitch sound. So if we're blasting out this high pitch energy, mm -hmm. we're disrupting all these different ecosystems, then even though we're visually under the radar and, you know, complying with, you know, what we believe to be um, good practice, then we're polluting, we're still polluting. We're not really getting anywhere. So we agree that light pollution is pollution. It's not a metaphor. Um, right. whose, whose responsibility is it to broadcast this message and to make the light fixtures and to make the standards and to do all this stuff? Is it the lighting industry's responsibility, moral responsibility? Yes, as a collective. Are we, I don't are, think that you can I, pinpoint one person no. or one organization. No. no, I agree with that. Have we accepted this as an industry yet? I think we've accepted it. We just don't know what to do. A lot of us, a lot of people are just like, I, I don't really know how to solve this problem. I can talk to my client about all of these issues. And, but I mean, at the end of the day, they're going to make a decision based on whatever it is that they value. And so sometimes they're going to value, um, darkness preservation and it, it'll be a win, but sometimes they're not going to value that. Sometimes they're just going to value how to get it done quickly and economically, I guess. So, and then uh, also what's their, what are they, how deep are their pockets? Like if, if they can't afford it, but they need to provide adequate lighting for their parking mm, lot and sure. they're a nonprofit, let's say, um, then somebody is offering them a fixture that is going to cost 50% less, but it's not necessarily going to be dark sky friendly. Then what are they going to do? They're kind of, they're kind of, their hands are tied. So. Yeah, I know. I, I, I'm in the field every day. <laughs> I, I understand yeah. those problems inherently. I mean, I have a very difficult time with this, but um, my, my point is this, is that, you know, everyone, when I hear the, I don't think the lighting industry has accepted this. And I don't think the lighting industry sees it as a moral obligation. I think they want it to be somebody else's problem. And um, just like the e-waste that's coming down the pipeline from the fixtures, not our problem. 
right? And But I think that if you look at how we solve these problems with extended producer responsibility programs that you hear about and all this kind of thing, I think the lighting industry, and this is just, again, my own opinion, and my opinions are mine. They don't reflect anyone else's opinion. I don't think any very few leaders in the lighting industry have accepted what I believe is their moral obligation. And that is that light pollution is pollution, which means that it damages all living things on the earth. It wastes energy. Um, it carbon emissions are your thing, climate change. Then darkness restoration is the number one way to begin to mitigate climate change, actually, um, if you want to use less energy. And so, I, I, Don, I have a hard time believing that the industry has accepted it as a moral obligation. And I think that's what it is. I think that the industry needs to look at this, whether it's the IES or you know, whatever organization, the DOE, the Department of Energy in the United States, Environment Canada, all these other big colossal institutions that have significant amounts of power actually and could do something about this. They have to stop seeing it as something that's balanced and start accepting the moral responsibility of, for the problem. And that can then get into the lighting industry and the lighting industry could say, you know what, actually, we're going to change our standards. We're going to change the way we go about making light fixtures. We're going to change the, all of these things. And yes, it's going to take time. And yes, it's going to take research. And yes, it's going to take education. And yes, it's going to take awareness creation. And yeah, all these sorts of things. But when's the last time, you know, in, either of us pulled out a lighting ordinance on light pollution? You could probably go down to the town of Uxbridge or Hamilton or Stony Creek, which is where you, you and I live in Ontario. So Americans, these are all small Ontario towns. And found the lighting in ordinance, you'd have to blow the dust off that thing, baby. Because nobody has probably picked it up in a long time. And again, even with the even with the bylaw officers, do they even know how to enforce a light pollution or a a, um, a light trespass uh, uh, so violation? So it's a lot of education. I, I agree mm -hmm. with you in that. Uh, we have some really fantastic municipalities that have mm -hmm. superb um, lighting ordinances, but we also have a lot of municipalities that really don't know. Um, so I'm actually also the vice president of IES Waterloo chapter. It's a new chapter, oh, IES chapter in Ontario. Thank you. And so one of uh, our goals is to help to educate municipalities in terms of lighting quality. Mm -hmm. and how to kind of write or put them in connection with the people that can help them write good ordinances um, and then educate students as they come up and get them um, passionate about it just as mm -hmm. we're all passionate about all aspects of lighting sure. and so I, I just feel like there's this disconnect between the science and the engineering and we need to kind of come together and and educate all of our whole society basically because if there's no demand for it and people just don't know then no matter what the lighting industry does nobody's gonna buy that you know can i make a suggestion so, yeah instead of worrying about lighting quality maybe talk about darkness quality too um, you know, yeah, that, has a, that has a quality. You can't have one without the other. That, well, right now we have right. one, which is lighting. Everybody talks about lighting, 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 light levels. They don't talk in terms of darkness levels. 
And I think that's fundamentally what has to change. In my opinion, if the lighting industry is going to um, uh, accept its moral obligation with respect to this issue, then we have to become the lighting and darkness industry. And we have to provide darkness as well as light. And that means that doesn't mean no light. I'm not, I don't have my own, own lighting company, of course. I, I, you know, I, I, you know, I want to sell lighting. And I, I, I think that darkness restoration, and this is the number one area where lighting control should be absolutely chasing municipal oh, yeah. street lighting. Like it's so obvious that that's the application for, you know, digital or connected lighting controls. But you don't see a lot of that. You see everybody's talking about the interior environment. To me, the exterior environment is the most obvious place for that with tuning and dimming. Like, come on. I mean, this is really powerful, a really powerful application that could do so much good. And then, you know, so I think I think we have to accept it as a mandate. And, you know, I'm, I'm talking about me, too. Like, I'm looking in the mirror when I say that. Like, I'm not I'm not speaking mm. from a high horse here. I'm part of the problem, just well, like the rest of us. That's why you're doing the podcast, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. But, you know, and, and, and I think with, with, the problem is like with words, like we don't use the right, we're constantly saying lighting and we're never saying darkness. We're constantly measuring light levels and never measuring darkness. And we're talking, I'm constantly talking about lighting quality and never talking about darkness quality. Darkness has a quality as well. And if you go, uh, if you drive, you know, whatever, if you and I got in a car and drove for two hours north of here and the sky happened to be clear, we would see what darkness quality provides for our, in our lives. We would feel the beauty of, of, our, of the nighttime environments. And, you know, all humans had access to that until very recently. And we've lost that. And we need to get it back, Don. That's my opinion. <laughs> So. Yeah, I, I I agree. We need and I'm really into circadian lighting design and a lot of I've noticed that there's a lot of focus on the daytime aspect of, you know, circadian stuff, but there is just as much importance to have darkness, um, which is easily achieved if you're in an interior environment. You can just always draw the shades, sure. right? But when you're in a, an outdoor environment, there's no shades. You have to dim. You have to apply controls. Um, and so we need to have darkness. Like we need to have silence. That. Have silence. Yes. Have, yes. I think one of my other guests, um, and I'm kicking myself, I, I got his name somewhere in these pile of papers, but great British fellow, he's um, working in, in, in a reserve in the UK. And they, they speak in terms of tranquility. And I really liked that a lot. He, he's mm -hmm. speaking in, in terms of darkness and silence being, you know, like heat and light, very similar waves. They're waves, right? And so mm -hmm. um, sound waves, light waves, right? So um, he, he they speak in terms of tranquility and those two things, you know, going together in terms of light pollution and sound pollution. Um, and so those things are, are always together. Light pollution and sound pollution come together, Right. Um, in fact, they're almost the same problem, although light pollution could be solved, but could be incrementally reduced um, by different measures the lighting industry would create. But um, when you talk about circadian, and I also have another podcast called the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast, um, where we, we've, we've interviewed many of the scientists that discuss this issue. And to me, you know, all of the circadian lighting that we could do for people boils down to improving their sleep. And yep. the, 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 the improved sleep is what's actually providing the benefits of circadian lighting. And so there's this circle that a good, 
quality designed lighting system by Don Brown or any of the wonderful designers that we have out there in the industry is going to contribute to you sleeping better, which in turn then provides these downstream benefits. And um, a lot of times when people are talking about more alertness and less sick days, if you just put my lights in there, that's an incomplete or that's a marketing strategy. That's actually not what's happening. Right. And I, 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 you know, with that, and so if you, and and then, and, and, and just to finish off on that, when we talk about, you know, being able to close our blinds, we're the only species that can do that. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this kind of goes back to what we were saying before about all light is pollution and that um, if we're negatively impacting any one component of nature, we're impacting ourselves. So I think that we need to shift our mindset to understanding that we are all connected and mm-hmm. we are humans are part of nature. And so by preserving our natural environment, which includes all of the little creatures and all the little critters out there yeah, sure. um, and creating more dark spaces and sanctuaries, not just for us, but for those guys out there, the mm-hmm. deer out there, the raccoons, everything, sure. um, then we are helping ourselves, even even water, like marine um, animals need darkness. So um, we all evolved under this day night pattern. So we definitely t- to change our mind shift to accept that we're all connected and and i think maybe that's and really we're all connected we can't just rely on the lighting industry to to be the trailblazers here we have to recognize that the lighting industry is responding to the rest of the industries out there because they're our clients Mm. so if there's if we increase the awareness of what it's doing to us collectively as a species there, I feel like it will all trickle back and working together will allow us to move forward and, and solve a lot of these uh, issues that we're faced with right now. Don Brown, I've had a wonderful time <laughs> speaking with you. This is one of my, I don't know why, but it, it's one of my favorite podcasts I think I've done on this show. So, um, I thank you. Yeah. Thank you for joining us today. And is there any final thoughts that you have for the Restoring Darkness listeners? Um, keep going, keep going. I feel like we have come so far and we just, we have to keep pushing forward and believing in our, our dream and knowing that we are making a difference. And what you're doing now might not seem like we're progressing very fast, but we're kind of paving the way for future generations that are going to come and look at what we've done and take it that to that next level. And so don't get discouraged. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep talking. Keep doing podcasts. Do gatherings. Um, just keep talking about it. And... Um, eventually we will progress there will be 
positive uh, outcomes that come. I've said a couple times on this show that, <clears throat> excuse me, I believe this is a hundred year issue. Um, and here we are on the threshold um, talking about mm -hmm. this. And so um, I thank you all for listening out there. And I would encourage you to add darkness to your verbal repertoire when you're talking about lighting <laughs> and throw it in there. The quality of darkness. How much of it do you have? Folks, thanks for listening. Bye for now. Look no further for dark sky friendly products than Evluma. Since its first product launch, Evluma has carried one or more International Dark Sky Association certified models. If your customer cares about light pollution, suggest the Omnimax with shielding or the Ariamax with full cutoff to reduce uplight and glare. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of darkness.